Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone, welcome to Series 2, Episode 2 of the Teachers Podcast. I just wanted to give you a quick update before we get into talking about my wonderful guest and everything that she has to share. If you're listening to the podcast on the day of release, Tuesday the 13th of October, we are hosting our first ever webinar at Classroom Secrets today. It's free, it's about the mass recovery curriculum, DFE guidance and the relevant research for making this effective. I'll be hosting the event and I'll be joined by Lee Peckover, our Head of Research and Development, and Katie Cockroft, our Key Stage 1 proofreader. So please join us. We've already had over a thousand registrations, so my nerves are definitely kicking in now. The link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Right, so this episode is absolutely packed with tips for making small adjustments to your teaching for children with additional needs. I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr Helen Cohen all about her experience, not only teaching children with additional needs and consulting with schools on SEND, but also her own experience with dyslexia, being diagnosed as an adult only a few years ago, and how that has helped her understand how children need to be helped. From use of language, how to set out your PowerPoints and select resources, to how to spot if a child may be dyslexic, Helen is just oozing with passion and knowledge that she just so generously shares. I know that you'll get so much out of the interview because I certainly did. And just before we get to the interview, I'd really appreciate your five-star review on your usual podcast platform. It's not just me behind the podcast. There's all the wonderful guests, of course, but I have a team of people that help me. Martin, Kayla, Zoe, Patricia, Cameron, Joel, Louis, Beck and Emily. It's a lot of hard work each week, but absolutely worth it to bring you such valuable knowledge for your teaching practice, but also to introduce you to individuals that may be able to help you further in the future. Anyway, the whole team would really appreciate it if you left us a review, so please do. Okay, let's get to my chat with Dr. Helen Cohen. Helen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome. Good to meet you. So we're still virtual. Uh, I think I must have said this like a million times now. Um, But it is good because it means that no matter where we are, we can make sure that we have a great conversation. And just having a little bit of a chat with you now, I'm really excited about this uh, particular interview that we're doing right now because I think you're just going to bring so much value and I'm excited for what you're going to say. Thank you. So... Without any further ado, do you just want to tell me everything about your life story? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> everything and just right. Um, so, uh, turns out I'm dyslexic. That will um, probably come up later. But um, I didn't know I was dyslexic growing up. So I grew up with incredibly supportive family, but thinking I was stupid. Um, I've thought I was stupid all, all my life. Um, I now have a doctorate. And my go-to is I'm stupid. So that, that's actually an important thing to know because I think anybody who is or works with anyone or knows anyone who's dyslexic, they need to be aware just how that, that affects your whole life. Mm. 
Um, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I can read and write. But um, yeah, with, with difficulty, let's put it that way. Um, so I was slow to, slow to read. And um, school was one of those things where I just went through life very oblivious. And I think that happens for a lot of people like me. So, so I, I went through life. I didn't even know we had a timetable at primary school. It was only when I got to secondary school and they gave us a timetable that I was like, oh, that's what that thing was by the door in the classroom. I, I had no idea, mm. no idea whatsoever. Um, secondary school was um, an interesting one. It was a streamed thing. So I only mixed, I was in a top set, but it meant that I thought I was thick because it took me ages to do everything. So I continued to think I was stupid because everybody around me was doing the same stuff, but they were doing it just, just like that, just, just happened. Mm. It didn't just happen for me. It was, it was a hard slog. You know, um, my parents would come into the room and turn the light off at about 10 o'clock at night saying you've done enough. And I would just turn it back on and continue doing my homework till gone midnight pretty much every night. Mm. So I worked hard. I was always conscientious, hard worker. Um, didn't get into the uni I wanted and my mum being wonderful just phoned up the local poly as they were in those days polytechnics mm -hmm. people now don't know what the hell I'm talking about but they they were these um, vocational places mm -hmm. and got me on a b-ed I knew I wanted to work with children that's all I knew I wanted to work with children so I got on this b-ed degree and that changed my life the first time I walked into a school as a on the teaching side of it I just knew I wanted to be a teacher I didn't know that before I started the course but it was like oh gosh I've come home so became a teacher and um, studied dyslexia at which point I found out I might be because mm. I couldn't deliver the assessments let alone uh, pass them as it were I was sort of trained to do some basic assessments and I was just yeah I was virtually in tears just just learning how to do it because it was just ah, I can't do this um not formally diagnosed though so I used to go around saying I'm a bit dyslexic um then been to various schools loads of different schools um I've taught literally from nursery right through to university everything in between I've done some adult teaching for dyslexics ironically um and i got persuaded to do a master's, did the master's, got a distinction and just assumed anyone can get a master's because I did. Um, it didn't make me think I had a brain yet. Um, mm. Then I was persuaded by my, the person who ran the master's persuaded me to do a doctorate. He nagged me and nagged me and nagged me and eventually it was like, okay, I'll do this doctorate. Um, took me a couple of years longer than it should, did a, an EDD, so it's a professional doctorate. And it was just before my viva, I found out I was dyslexic, um, formally assessed. Mm. But that, I mean, I know I've mentioned dyslexia a lot, but that is because that's an important part of who I am as a teacher. Yeah. It's, it's formed me as a teacher. As a person, I'm a second dan black belt in taekwondo. Um, <laughs> I'm married. I have four grown-up sons. And I now have two amazing, gorgeous grandsons, one of whom was born during lockdown. But I have actually met them both and held Congratulations. them both now. I know. It's fantastic. It's the best thing that ever happens to you. Um, so, And I, I love baking. I mean, there's loads of other stuff about me as a person but professionally if you're looking about me as a um as a teacher then i would say 
the dyslexia side of it is actually pretty important because it it steered me into the whole special needs area which which has sort of dominated i'm an english teacher that's actually my subject which um is also interesting yes, when you find out that I'm dyslexic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I'm, I'm I'm one of those sort of contradictions. In I I just sort of I I come at things. I was brought up to believe I could be anything I wanted to be. I was called Dumbbell and Donut by my parents, but that was a term of affection. But it drove <laughs> me to prove that I wasn't stupid. Hence, you know, getting to the to the doctorate um, because. I had to, I've had to prove it, but it wasn't done. It wasn't done maliciously. It was done as a oh you dumbbell you you talk about um, the the specific ocean. I was fourteen before I realised it wasn't a specific ocean. Mm -hmm. um, you know all the the, the park arcs, the biscettis, all of those. My parents just thought were cute. So mm -hmm. you know it, it was. But I was always told I could be whatever I wanted, achieve whatever I wanted. Um, and so I, as I said, I got my first black belt in my 40s um, mm. and got my second Dan the year I turned 50. So, yeah. And, and I was somebody who, let's just say, they didn't want to keep me in the ballet class when I was a little girl. <laughs> so, <laughs> not a natural, but, you know, you, you, firm believer in anyone can, can do anything if they put their mind to it. So I think that probably sums me up. And at what stage do you want to as well? Pardon? And at which stage do you want to as well? Yes, you've got to want to do something. Um, if you don't want to do it, you're not going to achieve it. It's as simple as that. Um, yeah. I, I think that's really important. But that also comes from those around you to a large extent. Yeah. Because... But Sorry. also age. It, you know, you can do it at any age you want. It doesn't have to be oh, gosh, when, yes. when you think it should be. Oh, I mean, my kids are proof of that. Um, they went through uni at all different stages. Um, and, you know, one of them tried it three times before he realised, actually, I really do want to go to uni and got all his qualifications and he's now a social worker and he's systemic family therapist and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's very much about you've got to be ready. But I, the age thing, I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually, because that's something... I'm getting really fed up with at the moment with the pressure to catch up because children have missed a few months of schooling mm. as though that's the only thing that matters. I would say their mental health matters an awful lot more. Um, the children that people have in front of them at school, we don't know what they've been through. Mm. Some of them have lost family members. Some of them have just not seen grandparents that they usually see every day and haven't seen them for six months. And what we should be saying, catch up, catch up on all your work. I, I don't think so. Um, so, yeah, this, you can get a qualification at any age. You don't have to get it just because the school system says you do it now. And I think yeah. that's a really important point. Yeah. OK. So how do you um, how do you spend your time now? What do you what do you do day to day now? Uh, OK. Uh, lots of different things. Um, I'm firstly, I. Uh, separate from the schooling stuff as it were I'm married to a rabbi so I have a congregational role I, I do pastoral work mm -hmm. and um, I've been leading services on zoom through lockdown and things like that so so there's that side of it um, I work for a group called real group they they run one of the Nasenko courses so I, I tutor on that 
and I also tutor on their international SENCO course. Mm -hmm. um, also on their NPQ, get the letters in the right order, senior leadership and middle leadership courses. And I'm now an assessor for those as well. So I do uh, each, you know, I, I do some assessments as well as tutoring and all the rest of that. Some sessional lecturing, um, going to schools as and when for insets, for consultancy, for, I'm also, um, I've got the, uh, what do you call it, the portable DBS, the enhanced DBS. So I can mm -hmm. go in and I can model a lesson for a teacher because, you know, I'll teach anyone <laughs> anywhere. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's basically it. But because I'm more flexible in my time, I also go for lovely long walks by the sea um, and I can go and see my family. Uh, so, I've, you know, I've come out of formal teaching and being a formal Senko in a school because I've wanted to be, flexible in my time because mm -hmm. family is so important yeah so which seaside are you by um ramsgate so oh, yes. i'm in ramsgate so i've got the sea and it's i literally i can walk 10 minutes and i'm i'm at the sea so i absolutely love it it blows away any cobwebs and and if you're stressed it just totally just sort of oh it just it's it engulfs you because of the sound and the smells and it's it's really central so yeah, I'm it really does. We go to the seaside quite a lot because uh, there's a caravan in the family. Um, and oh, I do cool. think if I lived at the seaside, I did I did live at the seaside for two years when I was at uni. Um, but I just think, oh, that's when I would get a dog. But I don't, so that's my excuse. <laughs> I've got a cat instead. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got cats. I want a dog, but I haven't persuaded my husband yet. So. <laughs> thing with the dog, it's... Um, Oh, dogs are like an extra child and I've already got two young ones so I just oh I don't need another one <laughs> um, I get that so when um obviously when we have first communication I kind of mentioned this before on the podcast um I always ask like potential guests to fill uh, a lot of information in and um something that you said really struck me and I wanted to ask you about that so you mentioned that something that you're the most proud of is helping a girl with situational mutism and so when I was reading that I thought okay well first of all I want to know what situational mutism is and you know how did you how did you help her okay so this wonderful girl um I met her when she was in nursery uh my school it was called selective mutism. Selective mutism and situational mutism are the same thing. Okay. But people are beginning to call it situational mutism because selective suggests that the child has a say in the matter and she doesn't. So situational means that what it means is that there are certain situations the child will find or, or the adult is not um, confined to children. The person will find themselves in a situation where they cannot talk. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're not able to talk. They are able to talk in other situations. But what happens is it's, it's, um, it's a high anxiety thing. And actually your, your vocal cords are constricted so much that the words won't come out. You can't produce the sound. When I first started working with this young lady, she was so anxious that she her movements were, were the tiniest and tightest movements I have ever seen in any child. Um, if she went to touch the blackboard or the whiteboard, I should say, I'm showing my age there, um, went to touch the whiteboard, she would hold something really tightly in her hand and walk, hold her hands really close to her body, walk up. In, so she's literally, her whole body is touching the board 
make the tiniest mark on the board and then move away, keeping her body that tight. I mean, that's how extreme. When I needed to do some assessments on her, I, would, I did um, a BPVS, so it was, I needed to get an idea of her vocabulary because I had no idea what she could and couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So I did a BPVS and all she had to do was touch the relevant picture. So again, she didn't just reach out and touch it. She moved her whole body towards the picture and keeping her fingers tight to her, holding a tissue, she would touch the page, touch the picture. But then in between, she'd be shredding this tissue. I used to, we used to call it killing a tissue. Um, and she used to, she wouldn't guess at that point. She wouldn't, if she didn't know something, 100% sure she knew the answer. She wouldn't touch any pictures at all. You couldn't persuade her to guess. Mm. Um, and we worked with her with an amazing lady called Maggie Johnson, who's an expert in um, selective mutism or situational mutism. And we were just lucky enough that she happened to be based where we are. And she's the ex. I mean, she's she's an expert. She's brilliant. And you do this thing where you um, you you have a a task where there is no demand on the, on the, no thinking. So you might say, I would say one, somebody else who she's comfortable with would say two, then she would be expected to say three. You'd gradually build mm-hmm. it in. So you start without yourself in the room, just her and somebody she's comfortable with, and they do it gradually. You would open the door, you would get close. There's this whole sliding in process. Um, it actually took me till she was in year six to get a sound out of her. But what I did, yeah, I mean, this was a long-term project. What I did get was we would play, I got her relaxed in my company. We blew bubbles. We did all sorts of things. Um, And we would play games and she would, she wouldn't talk, but she would write. I'd get her to, she had a whiteboard so she could wipe it off. So there was no threat of anything permanent. Um, I managed to get her to the point where she was prepared to make guesses and her standardized scores just went right up because she did know things, but unless she was 100% certain, she wouldn't have guessed before. Um, But she would play games and whoever we played, we'd always bring another adult in because I think it's very important you don't have somebody rely totally on you Mm -hmm. um, because you're not there to be their best friend. You're there to support them. And if they rely on you, what if you're away? You Mm -hmm. you need to bring other adults in. she would always play it so that I would lose whatever happened. She wouldn't care if she helped somebody else win as long as I lost, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I, I used to do holiday visits. Um, every school holiday, I would go around to her house, have coffee with her mum, and we would talk so that she didn't have that, that time away from us. Mm. Um, and I actually got very close to the family. What her mum said is she felt, that the young lady felt that I was the one person she wanted to talk to, but never would be able to. Uh, We got her to the point where she could record her voice and we could play it. We got her doing her part in the school assembly or whatever it was, where she stood on stage and we played her voice. Um, She was in my form and at registration, she would just press play. We had a lovely thing where we had to get them to record these um, they recorded riddles for each other. I, I love doing brain teasers. They did these riddles. And we'd agreed with her that I would play her riddle, but she wouldn't be in the room because she couldn't be in the room with her voice yet. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> she, we had a secret code. She would pretend she needed the loo. She would disappear off. Then I would play it. Her closest friend just looked at me daggers when I played it. Didn't realize I hadn't 
mentioned that actually I had permission to do this and she thought I was betraying this young girl I'm like no 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 we have permission it's okay um the amazing thing that happened is after um she'd left the school I still went to see her mum but not when she was around because that was just I'd got on well with her mum um and one day I was sat around there and we'd got her to the point where she could squeak in front of me no, I wouldn't say speak but squeak she went to her new school and she spoke it was pretty monosyllabic only if spoken to but she did speak which meant that she coped in secondary school which was fantastic mm -hmm. um but I was around there chatting to her mum and suddenly she just chipped in with the conversation and it was just normal talking it, it was and I couldn't react because the thing she was frightened of was people reacting to her voice so mm -hmm. I had to pretend this was normal and just carried on with chatting to her mum and just bringing it in and just like she walked out the room to get something and her mum and I would be like yay you know sort of like doing yeah. the little dance that you do and sort of keeping our voices down so she wouldn't hear it and then um, she came back in carried on chatting and it was just I, I can't describe it was euphoric it was a just really amazing moment oh my gosh uh, it's amazing and then as I left the house, I'm texting her mum. It's like, I can't believe it. And she's going, I can't believe it. And since then, I've bumped into her in the street and she's run up to me going, Mrs. Cohen and things like that. And it's just like, wow. Um, but she still has situational mutism. There are still people she can't speak in front of. Um, and the other thing is where she does speak in school, or she's left school now, she's now at um, college. But when she was at school and she spoke, she then developed a slight she couldn't eat in school so there was still this anxiety so it doesn't go away and yeah. I think that's important people think oh she spoke it also can look like um defiance it can it can look just like she's being rude and she's not so if you've got somebody who's got situational mutism it's important that everybody and I do mean everybody is aware of it and puts no pressure to speak. The minute you put pressure on to speak, it makes it harder for them to speak. Um, I've written a chapter about it, detailing it in detail. It's, it's on my website, but it's also in a book called Selective Mutism in Our Own Words. And I've done a chapter on it there, um, a book by someone called Carl Sutton. Um, and it, it, it's amazing. I mean, talk about long-term <laughs> from nursery yeah, to year six. It is a long time. <laughs> And a yeah. wonderful reward as well. Oh gosh. Yeah. I think I was just I was thinking about what you're saying about, you know, it's important everybody knows. And I think sometimes in school we we don't we think, oh, it's on a need to know basis, but sometimes that's not helpful. And I guess in this situation as well, if a child does have situational mutism, you know, unless we're really aware of kind of what's going on, it's it's gonna be easy for an adult to think, Well, you're deliberately not talking to me because you talk to her. Yeah, it's that is that is so important, and it can look like dumb insolence mm. when they just stand there with a blank face in front of you. Um, and if people don't realise it, it's awful. I mean, the advice is very strongly that other people know, and that the person with situational mutism is aware that the other people know. Mm. You're not doing anything in secret. Nothing. Everything's open. There's nothing behind their backs and that's really important. So you explain why they need to know and you explain it so there is no pressure. But you do need people to know and that includes the dinner ladies, it includes 
lunchtime soup everybody you mm. make sure everybody is aware um we had some really good training on it which, which helped but we use things like um had a mobile phone i got her a mobile phone the teacher would have it and she would have it and it was just the only numbers in each were each other's numbers Mm -hmm. so they could text each other so she could text an answer in um and you know we had all sorts of things we had the use of whiteboards for showing an answer loads of ways that she could join in we also did something it's one of my strategies it's a really important strategy i call it um i call it creative talmud but that's because it's um written discussion of text that's a good way of putting it um so basically you have a text that they're going to discuss. You have it in the center of a really big bit of paper. So like an A3 bit of paper and it will just have maybe one stanza of a poem. The group, in groups, they discuss it, but they write down their discussion around it. So they might point to something and say, you know, put an arrow in and say, alliteration, demonstrating, such and such, or whatever it happens to be. It gave her a role because she was always grouped with someone she could talk with. Mm-hmm. but so she could actually join in the conversation she could also be the scribe and what you do is once you've done yours you then pass your bit of paper to the next group you do you you sort of so there might be seven bits of paper being passed around so mm-hmm. everybody gets to write their own bit and read what everyone else has written about the you know because you then get the next stanza mm-hmm. and you'll read the other comments as well as the stanza and then add your own and it gets passed around and you get your own back and it's a way of her having a voice mm-hmm. in that situation it also means the dyslexic doesn't have to write it means that the person with speech language communication needs everyone can have a different role depending on their abilities and it, it's a really good strategy for including the whole class in a discussion when you've got people who would otherwise not be able to join in. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, you're an English teacher um, because, you know, it's really important. I suppose when we think about dyslexia, it's, it affects all subjects. Yeah. But we could say that it affects English the most because, it, yeah. you know, the English um, lesson really supports all the other lessons. Yeah. So it's great that you've kind of got that experience of making it work in the most difficult situation, if that makes sense, in the most difficult subject. Yeah. I think that's really important because English is the dyslexic's nightmare and you want to make it a lesson they want to come to. Mm. And there are ways of doing that. There are lots of ways of doing that. Um, I've spent my life doing that. It was it was a particular teacher who got me, if you know what I mean, and she set us a task. One of the things that you do um, is, so it's about what is it you're trying to teach them, okay? So if you're trying to teach rhyme and they have to make up a poem, there's an awful lot of composition that has to happen. Are you teaching rhyme or are you teaching composition? So this particular teacher, Mrs. Herlihy, um, the ones whose names you always remember, mm-hmm. um, she gave us a task where she said, take a fairy tale or a story that you know and tell it in rhyming couplets. So I didn't have to think about what I was going to write. I just had to think about the rhyming couplets. Mm-hmm. And it just took a level of the load off. And it was the first 
fully successful English lesson I ever had as a pupil. And it, it just, it, it gave me a confidence I didn't have before with English and a love of it that I didn't have before. And I've used that in loads of ways. So if you're teaching journalism, for example, you're teaching, um, you know, report writing as in writing a, a report for a newspaper. So you're talking about newspapers. Give them the story of, you know, um, the three little wolves, the big bag pig. So you've got, firstly, you've got the twist on the story. So it's, a, it's fun because they like that because it's a twist and they feel they're a bit older, they're getting the twist. But you yeah. get them to report on it. So they haven't got to think of the story. They've got to think of the style of writing. Mm -hmm. And it's a really useful little technique for, for teaching English. And it can be adapted to other subjects. Think about what it is you want them to learn and make sure that that is what you're actually asking them to do. Yeah, yeah. And trying to support in the other areas. I think yeah. I feel like that brings us on really nicely then. So um, obviously I'm the CEO of Classroom Secrets and we create resources for teachers. Um, so what is it that makes a resource accessible you know, how, how can teachers and resource sites make their resources more accessible? For the pupils, you mean, to mm -hmm. make it accessible for the pupils. Oh, gosh, that's an easy one. Right. OK. So firstly, they need to have very little on each slide. Mm -hmm. Please don't overload the slide with words, um, because if it's overloaded with words, then I mean, I'm not going to read it for a start. I know I'm not going to read it. Um, put some images up there images that tell the story that the slide is about because then when I see if, if somebody then is talking over that slide talking about that slide it doesn't matter what the words are on the slide they've discussed it they've explained it but there's a picture I will hold that picture in my head and that picture is all I need to actually remember the content mm. the words aren't going to do it um, color code things don't have everything in the same color when you, if you've got, say, for example, you've got bullet points, each bullet point should be a different color, not everyone a different color, but alternate the colors or something. Mm -hmm. Never, 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 never have black on white because that is so hard to read. Mm -hmm. Make sure your background is, you know, you, you aren't going to get everybody's color right if they've got Erlen syndrome. Um, mm -hmm. So if they've got um, eye stress, um, visual stress. But if you make the background a calmer color, and the font, the, the, the writing may be a gray or a dark blue or whatever. Try to avoid green and red if you're alternating, because that's when you find out who's colorblind. Um, mm -hmm. That's something I learned from experience yeah. with uh, students. But yeah, so, so toning down the background, not overloading the slide. If you're, say it's your whiteboard, um, have things in the same place so you know where to look for them. So if you've got a, um, some sort of PowerPoint and it has the learning objective, for example, or, or homework or whatever it happens to be, if that's always in the top left-hand column or whatever, you know where to look for it. Mm -hmm. Because a slide is a very confusing thing, especially if you're, if you're dyslexic, if you're dyspraxic, if you have visual stress, speech language communication needs, ADHD, Oh, another one, really, really important. Learn this one the hard way as well. Um, really think about your layout. If you've got, say you've got like a couple of lines that are meant to be, how do I explain it? So if you're doing, um, 
like with sounds right you'd have a, a letter on each line you'd have like a, a little line um and a letter on top of it then another line so the word sat the s is on top of a line the a is a line and the t is on a line mm -hmm. if those lines are one pixel out you might have a child with either sensory needs or autism who is going to spend that whole lesson just looking and obsessed with the fact that that is one line out yeah. one pixel out yeah i learned that the hard way when a child when at the end of a lesson i asked something from a child and he said all he said to me is that line was was below the other one and i'm thinking they're not and when i looked it was one pixel out so yeah. check those things it sounds really nothingy but so important mm -hmm. um also think about your words because if you've got somebody on the spectrum you can word something in a way that it can be misconstrued if you're using idiomatic language they may be trying to do the wrong thing throughout if you've said think of something they'll think about it they won't give you an answer mm. they haven't been told to say anything but they're thinking about it you told yeah. them to you know yeah. so so the language we use needs to be more precise than we often are we have to learn that the other thing is is positive framing of language whether it's on a slide it's a resource however if you tell somebody um not to run they're thinking about running in the same way as if i say don't think about the sky you're thinking about the sky but if i say don't think about the sky think about the chair you're sitting on whatever it is you want them to do you know so if you say mm -hmm. don't run because we all forget follow it up by walk mm -hmm. then the last thing they've heard is walk so the language we use whether it's speaking or in a resource is incredibly important and we mm -hmm. can easily get that wrong we all do and i suppose it's it's about being aware isn't it um aware of these things and we're never going to change the way we are if if maybe it's not working out overnight but being aware and and trying to make those small changes you know if we yeah. do say a lot don't run then adding walk and it might get to a point where we don't even have to say don't run we just say walk please exactly exactly and it is a learning process um but positive framing of, of language makes a huge difference um, we're, we're always telling people to stop talking. Stop talking. So they're hearing about talking. Yeah. Can you please listen is a much better way of putting it. You know. It's really funny, actually, because um, I do a lot of personal development and a lot of um, the, the books on that and about mindset will tell you the same thing. You know, don't focus on what you don't want. Fo yeah. focus on what you do want because if you focus on what you don't want you're going to get what you don't want because that's what you're thinking about because exactly. the mind doesn't know the difference between do and don't it just focuses on the thing exactly so yeah. it's the same thing um yeah okay then so i always put the questions out to my team um so one of um my colleagues who's also uh, still teaching just would like to know have you got any top tips for supporting a year six child who is uh, working at year one level with an EHCP for dyslexia. What, what would you right, tell so her? The first thing is you have to boost their confidence. You can't do anything till they start believing themselves, but you have to do it with, um, I call it targeted deserved praise, because it's very easy to not hear the praise if you don't believe in yourself. So when I say targeted, deserved praise, if you say something's good, say specifically what is good. That's a really good P 
piece of work because you've obviously thought about the describing words. So mm. they know what they're doing well. They can't argue with it then. You've explained what it is that's good. So that's an important thing. Um, giving them things to read that are, there are some fantastic resource books out there. There are books that are basically building on phonics, but they are adventure stories for older children. Um, trying to think what they're called. Um, can't think of the name offhand, but there are some really good ones out there. Some really good series. Yeah, I can't um, think of the specific one, but I'm sure Tom Palmer writes them. Um, yeah, there, there are several out there. Um, and and they are, it, it's worth looking very... So think about your reading material and you want something that doesn't look... What you don't want to do is use something they would have used when they were in the infants. Mm. Because that's about making them feel less you know you don't want them feeling stupid you want them feeling that they can achieve things so it may be as simple as that but the content has to be age appropriate if you start giving them biff chip and kipper again they are associating it with the failure they had when they first read biff chip and kipper yeah and they're thinking everybody's looking at me reading biff chip and kipper um build on their own language Get them to present things differently. You know, you're teaching them English, but there's more to English than reading and writing. Mm. You can listen to things. Use software. I use Dragon Naturally Speaking, uh, voice recognition software. Teach somebody how to use the scribe. Don't just assume they know how to do it. But better still, voice recognition software means they can be independent. If you teach them to use a scribe, you teach them to rely on another person. They're going to move into secondary school and then what? Rely on another person. If they've learned how to use something like Dragon Naturally Speaking or there's, I um, uh, can't think of the one, but there's a, re there's a reading one as well. Dragon does read to you, but there are better ones that are focused on the reading. Mm -hmm. Have the pen. You can get pens that you, you trace it over your work and it reads it to you. Use that technology. Teach them how to use it. Also support their actual reading and writing. They need to have some intensive reading and writing. But it needs to be fun. My room, um, I mean, you can see, because you're, you're sitting, you, know, you can see yeah. me while we're having this interview. You can see there's a dragon puppet down there. Yeah. If I were to move my camera around the room, you would see I have got probably more well more than 20 puppets in here my room i mean they, those are my ones i had puppets in school my room was the room every child wanted to go to it wasn't seen as a oh gosh i've got to have extra lessons that comes because i know what that's like my my i didn't you know you can suppress a memory mm -hmm. so the first parents meeting i had as a dyslexia teacher as a senko rather in, in school talking to somebody about their child who was dyslexic i had this discussion and it re-triggered a memory yeah the memory yeah. was of me being about eight years old sitting in a classroom literally arms length away from the window the other side of the window were all my friends playing in the playground I was sat there and they were throwing down flashcards. I wasn't allowed to play till I could read those words. Mm. One of those words was like, I can still see the words, like, there, 
they were words that I couldn't read, but mm -hmm. I couldn't go out to play. So I just knew I was stupid. I wasn't, but I thought I was because of that. And I was being punished for being stupid. Mm. So if you're going to support a child, you don't take them out of something they enjoy doing. You don't take your brilliant artist out, out of an art lesson to teach them how to read and write. Yes. <laughs> because then, you know, you're going to hurt them. They're going to feel they're being punished. You have an honest discussion with them about the lessons they do and don't enjoy. And you may not like the answers, but it's worth listening to them. You take them out of something they're not fussed about. It might be an assembly. It might be different lessons each week, but based around the subjects that they are quite happy to miss. You make your room somewhere fun to be. It's easy to do. A couple of puppets, a couple of um, interesting fidgety things, puzzles. You let them do whatever they need to do to learn. So I, I mean, you can see me. I have been fidgeting the whole time. I have not sat still at all. I've been swinging in my chair. You've seen, I cannot sit still. I can't That's either, I sir. Yeah, just, you're doing a very good job. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> mine's below the waist. <laughs> all right. No, mine's my whole body. I'm just on the move the whole time. Um, you let them have what it is that helps them to feel good. And then you do, you turn it into a game. You have the, the spelling arc where you've got all your wooden letters. I still don't know if that letter J is the right way round when they've put their alphabet out. I have my own strategies. One of my sons is called Joe and I write his name. Then I know which way round the J should be. I can't tell by looking at the letters, but I also am honest with the kids. They know I'm dyslexic and you know, I'm just sort of like, look, I've got, I, sound, I always say, I mean, now I know I'm fully dyslexic, but I say I'm a bit dyslexic myself. Can't always tell. Make it fun. Turn it into a game. Give them rewards and do it every day. Ten minutes reading every day is better than, an, you know, take them, take them out for half an hour. Mm. Every single day, that constant reinforcement. It's so important. Um, also, as the teacher, a lot of teachers give their send children to the TA mm. and they work with the others. Why are they doing that? The people who are finding it hardest need the teacher. They need the person who's trained in doing this. So as a teacher, set the others on a task and work with your children. So work with your dyslexic. Talk about what they want. Also, give them warning. Don't just throw it at them that, oh, fantasy writing today. What? How am I meant to get my head around that? Talk about fantasy writing in the weeks coming up to when you're going to do your fantasy project. By the time they get to do it, they know. Let them have a laptop in class or a notebook or, you know, something. Use our technology. That is so important. I can't stress that enough. And people say, oh, but they need to learn how to do it by hand. Actually, they don't. We've all got phones. Mm -hmm. we, we need to know how to do it. But let's use the technology that will help us get through life. Whilst alongside that, teaching them the reading and the spelling and everything else. Yeah, I suppose it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Because, we, you know, we want everyone to be able to write. But then if you're spending so much time on that, then they're not learning all the other skills that that yeah. you're learning in in english and, and like you say you know 
you are going to be able to use a phone, you are going to be able to use a laptop um, once you leave that classroom. Um, so it's, it's balancing, isn't it? And not, yeah. not, not stopping children from moving on, learning all the other things that they can learn because they can use the exactly. voice. And what's, what's interesting about this conversation is, um, you know, so my daughter's four, she's in a reception class. She can write a name and that's it. That's, you know, she's not really a fan of, of writing. She likes cutting and sticking and, and whatever else, but she's very good with the language and um, she will tell stories and stories that sometimes I think, wow, I've taught you four children and they might tell a story like this. Yeah. And because she's four, we go, oh, that's okay. And I already worry about when it comes to writing, if she'll still be as creative because she'll be like, oh, I don't have to spell that word. And, you know, I've got no reason to believe that, you know, at this point that she would struggle with that. But it's, it's interesting. At, at that age, we're not going to say, okay, well, you can't use those words because you can't write them. So we need no. to make sure that as they move through school, even if they're, they're struggling, that we're not stopping yeah. the wider piece that is essential that the vocabulary every child i've ever taught knows that i care more about their vocabulary than their spelling the spelling we can work on afterwards i couldn't care less i need to know that they can read it back to me mm. so sometimes they will write with a mixture of words and pictures even at the year six because they they know what they want to say they've gone blank draw me a picture of it that's fine we can come back to that but at least then you won't have forgotten basics of what you were trying to say if you see what I mean mm. so don't put you know I personally don't put the emphasis on anything other than content to start with um, we, we work we don't I would rather do fewer pieces but have them do them better because they've spent also then they're learning that actually we learn from our mistakes this is such an important um, part of resilience and part of life you know it doesn't matter if you get it wrong what matters is what you do about that yeah so you know write it down get down i'd rather you you wrote the word a good example is i can't spell apologize i've tried all different methods to teach myself how to spell it i can't spell it i know that um it might come out right sometimes but there's no guarantee i have to look that up every time if i'm writing literally handwriting something and i don't have access to a computer or a phone i use the word sorry I will change the whole sentence to avoid using the word apologize mm. because I can't guarantee I'll get it right. On the computer, I'll use apologize. Mm. Do you see what I mean? That's just one example. And it's the one that I know. It's just one of many that just, yeah, it's just, it's just one of my bugbears. You know, I can't do that one. But if you, if you think about that, though, I think it's really interesting that you've said that. And let's touch on that because, you know, you're an adult now you, you probably don't care but if you're a child and you do have this vocabulary and then you're changing your language i mean s sorry is obviously more simple than apologize but you can imagine that there'd be a, a lot more even simpler versions of different words and all of a sudden you're going to write something completely different to what your original idea is and that is not going to show yeah. what you can do Exactly. And I mean, one of the things I do as a, as a Senko is at the beginning of every full term, you know, the sort of uh, some place in the country, you now have six terms, some places you have three. Imagine you had the three that we always used to have. So after, when you first come back in, the, in September, 
January and then April or May, whenever it is, after Easter. Mm -hmm. You do it. Every child in the school does a 10 minute free write. They have their own book for it. It's a separate book so they can continue things if they want. 10 minutes. I chose 10 minutes because it doesn't take up much lesson time. It's easy to mark and I can do my division that way very simply. So I can tell you how many words per minute they're writing. So I do, I do, a, miscue, I do a miscue spelling analysis. So I will put, say they've written 27 words. So they're writing 2.7 words a minute. They might have 10 errors, but I don't, so I'll put 10 errors. I work out the percentage accuracy from that, but I then log every spelling error. So it could be phonetically accurate. It could be close phonics. It could have an omission, an addition. A rev it could uh, have a reversal. It could be bizarre. So there's all different elements and yeah. I put them in the right column. Then I can, and then I have columns that say vocabulary, punctuation, composition, a com a grammar. And so, you know, that for example, picks up on EAL. If you've got grammar and you're finding out they're missing the article and you've got Nepali children, they don't use the article in Nepalese. Mm. So, you know, then I'm thinking, oh, that's an EAL issue. EAL issue. You know, it sort of gives me a bit of a clue there. Yeah. Um, or it could be a speech and language issue. Subject verb agreements could be wrong all the way through, that sort of thing. Um, but also I get to see, I then put that on a spreadsheet. I get to see progress. The next time they do it, they may have written fewer words, but what if their vocabulary has gone up? Mm. They've used better vocabulary. What if their spellings have moved from bizarre to, oh yeah there's close so phon phonically accurate yeah close phonics so what if it's moved from bizarre to close phonics mm. wow that's incredible so their spelling test has been five out of ten all year but they've actually made progress the yeah. spelling test won't show you that but a, a 10 minute free write will and by doing it for the whole school getting the english teachers to market training the english teachers how to um fill out the grid if you can, and then you oversee it. If not, you have a few, I mean, specialist TAs who can do that. However, you share the load. But by having everybody do it, you don't lose sight of the norm. Because if you're working in special needs, you can actually forget what the expectation is for a child of that age. Mm. Do you see what I mean? So, and you can also pick up the bright ones you also find things out about ones that you wouldn't have picked up otherwise because they're bright. So it's a really useful exercise. But the children know that I'm looking for good vocabulary. They always know that. Mm. And I care more about that than spelling. And that, that really does help. I guess another good thing about that as well is, you know, we're always looking for evidence, aren't we? I, um, I was talking to a friend just the just the other day actually um we went to college together and then we both ended up teaching at different points and um she was saying that school that she's at, at the moment um is similar to schools that she's been in in the past she had a bit of a break she um had children and has just recently gone back and i was asking how it was and she was saying it, it's similar but she really likes the head teacher they, they seem to have really cracked a way to track the progress of the smallest of steps and it's yeah. and so it's she didn't have that before and it's good that they can show they can show the progress so really they're, they're probably not doing 
that much different from the other schools, yeah. but it will seem more successful. And yeah. I think that's a really good way to, to show that children are progressing in spelling, even if they're not spelling everything right. Yeah, I mean, this, the inspectors loved it. That has gone down so well with inspectors. Um, and it, it does, it shows, because how do you, you know, if they're getting, I, I, I learned about that. Funny enough, I, I developed that idea after doing a truth essay for my, in, in the doctorate, you had a taught aspect before you did your own research. And I was doing something on the nature of truth. And I was so fed up with people talking about the data and the data not telling the true story because the data told me they were getting five out of 10 for every spelling test. Mm -hmm. And I knew they were making progress. And so I wanted to demonstrate it. And that's when I came up with this idea. So it's a few years old now, but it's, yeah, very successful. It's one of the things I'm really pleased with that I came up with. It's a great idea. I think you'll have, um, you. hopefully you'll get a lot of messages about people saying, oh, I've tried that and it really, really helped. Um, yeah, I've got, if anybody actually does want to and they want to do that and they ever message me, I will just send them a template. They won't have to make it up for themselves. I, I, I want it all out there. I, I don't, I just want people doing stuff that helps them, you know? Yeah. So, um, your website will obviously be in the show notes, but tell us what it is. Uh, www. Obviously, please miss please. Co. Uk. Okay, so easy so, to remember as well. Please miss please. Please yeah, help me with exactly. my dyslexia. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I did discover for um, interesting reasons that for my Twitter I had to put an ed in front of please miss because um, otherwise you get some very unsavoury. Um, yeah. Yeah, you probably don't. <laughs> I'm not going to say more. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can work that one out for yourself. Yeah. Um, right. I'm just conscious that we've got um, a lot of really good questions um, <laughs> and time sticking on. So um, next one then. So this was brought by someone who's just joined the team. It's a really great question. Um, she's got a background um, in SEND, which I mentioned to you just before. So she says, what are the traits of dyslexia other than the common swapping of letters such as B and D and P and Q? Right. Well, firstly, before I go into those, I'm going to mention the P and B. Because if you've done anything on cued articulation, you'll be aware that P and B are the same letter sound. One is voiced and one is unvoiced. So if you see P and B confusion, it may be a hearing issue and not a dyslexia issue. Right. So that's something to be aware of. It's the same as K and G. The, the, the hard sound for a K, oh, I'm going to say it the wrong yeah. way with the schwa, and the G, I'm saying it with the schwa so it can be heard. Yeah. G. One is voiced, one is unvoiced. Yeah. If you do your cued articulation, you will notice that, and that's important for hearing. Mm -hmm. same as f and v. there's certain ones where they're, they're the same so we need to be aware of these they mm -hmm. really do matter so firstly you can actually say somebody think somebody's dyslexic when actually they've got hearing issues so be aware of what the errors are and mm -hmm. if they are just think about the letter errors that are getting swapped are they voiced and unvoiced of the same basic sound as if you like yeah. that's something to consider so um, executive functioning, which isn't just about dyslexia, that goes with so many areas of special needs, but somebody who is dyslexic will have their thoughts all over the place. 
So it's not just about your letters being reversed or both reversal as in orientation or reversal as in the order in the word, but it's also about um, your thoughts. It's hard to explain. My thoughts are all in my head at the same time. So are the words on the page. They're in, they're in my head along with the words I'm thinking about. So I can't distinguish whether I don't know whether a word is on the page or in my head. I don't always know that. So with my doctorate, I had to rewrite a lot of my thesis. I passed the viva just like that. No problem. Great viva. I had to rewrite a lot of my thesis because what they said is, that's not in your thesis. And I'm like, yes, it is. Like, no, it isn't. Because it was in my head, I'd filled in the gaps. So mm -hmm. I'd read a few words. And I so if, if not all the words are reaching the page, that could be a sign of dyslexia because mm -hmm. also if you if you've got somebody who is talking about one thing and they go off and start talking about loads of other things so they so can't would, sorry would you say, say then so if if um, a child's written a sentence and you ask them to read it back and they add words in would that be an example of that yes right okay. yeah if they're reading words that aren't on the page they're quite off that could well be that if they can't think silently if they're always talking while they're thinking. Mm. Some people with dyslexia, I don't always know when I'm saying something out loud. So I do sometimes get some interesting looks as I walk down the street, but I don't care. Um, but you know, sometimes I just don't know if it's come out my mouth or if it stayed in my head. So that's another thing. Executive functioning. So doing things in a weird order, not necessarily doing things in a logical order, whether that be organizing your thoughts on the page but it could actually just be in the way you approach a task um having something to say and not being able to get it out you might think it's a speech and language issue but it might be a word retrieval issue to do with the dyslexia that what's happening is imagine a load of it's, it's like your thoughts are all around your head as well as inside it and you can't grab it you know when you hear you know people go it's on the tip of my tongue mm. Ideas are like that for a lot of dyslexics. So it's not just the individual words, it can be a whole idea. So one of the things I used to do, one of the things I used to do, I had this brilliant deputy head, absolutely adored him. And if I had an idea and I knew it was a good idea, but I couldn't quite bring it together, I would ask him to come to my office. I would make sure the sweet jar was in front of him so he would be happy. And I would just talk <laughs> at him for half an hour. Oh yeah, always a reward. I'd talk at him for half an hour and then at the end of it he'd give me four sentences that summed up everything I was trying to say. Because he could grab it and, and organize it for me. And and you know we worked really well together because he could organize it. Um so that's so it's not just about spelling, it's not just about reading. It's also about processing. So I have difficulties. I'm, I'm fine doing this because I'm talking about something that is my day in, day out. I've been doing this forever. Mm. But you, I watch something on the news and people are discussing it, for example. They've moved on to the next subject. I've now worked out what they were saying and how I'm going to respond to it. Mm. But they've moved on. That's one of the reasons I used to feel stupid. Um, because I had a really good idea. And by the time I said it, they're like, well, we're not talking about that anymore. 
So somebody who always needs that extra thinking time mm. could be speech and language, could be ADHD, could, but it could also be a sign of dyslexia. So it's about bringing all these different things together. Also, obviously, if there's a big mismatch between their spoken contributions, their obvious intelligence and what, what they produce. If they're, if they're, what we were talking about earlier, if their spoken language is rich, if they talk about somebody being gregarious when they're speaking in class and then they write down, he was a fun person. Yeah. That's a good indication. So simplified vocabulary. A mismatch in spoken written and written down. vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. I was <laughs> there <thinking>. you go. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Yeah. There was a theme on what you were saying, and I was about to say it, but I can't remember. Anyway. That's exactly what my life is like. Um, yeah, my mum my is beginning to every now and then forget things. Mm. and she's finding it frustrating because she's got a brilliant memory um what she had but that's been me forever but give me that's the other thing another bit of advice for working with anybody with any special needs if you can make something multi-sensory you're more likely to remember it so when I, mm. I do work on adjectives, I bring people in something lovely to eat and something awful to eat and, and let them taste it and describe it. They never forget that lesson because they tasted it. Yeah. You know, mm. bring in your senses as much as you can. That does make, make a difference. I've remembered what it was. I feel like the theme here in, in all the things that you were saying that could be kind of, you know, presenting, uh, dyslexia presenting in different ways one thing that slightly worries me with the number of children that we have in classes and, and not having TAs is that you, you have to know the child. It's not just about looking at the book. Yeah. You have to yeah. have built a relationship to actually know yeah. those things because you might not really know what their vocabulary is like when they speak. Yeah. You might just be reading what they're writing. That, that's true with, that's, that's just true with teaching. You know, if you don't know the child, how do you pick up on the one who's been abused? Mm. When you find out that, a, you know, this is going back to my very first year of teaching. I was, they called it probationary in those days, not NQT. I was a probationary teacher. It sounds like I'd been in jail. Um, I think it's still like that in started, Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> well, she was, this, this 12-year-old girl started reading something that was not her usual reading matter. And I picked up on the fact that she didn't normally read on that. And I was concerned about her and it turned out she was being sexually abused. Mm. Um, and she, she came up to me about that and I called in a more experienced member of staff, I hasten to add, and we dealt with it. But, you know, if I didn't know the child, I could have missed it. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of things. You don't notice the child go quiet if you don't realise that they're normally noisy. No. Um, the other thing is to watch out for that quiet child. The child that you overlook is the one I worry about. The one who's dyslexic or whatever it happens to be, um, and you know may, they may have autism, and, and they are loud about it. You're going to notice them. But the, the girl who's autistic and masks it by trying to fit in and goes quiet, you don't know that she's gone home and had a meltdown. Mm. 
Mm. You need to know that child. You need to get to know the children. You need to listen to the parents. That's the other thing. The parents know their children and, you know, it's so easy to dismiss them because, well, they don't do that at school. Well, if it's a girl and she has autism, she won't do that at school. She's not going to have a meltdown at school. She might, but the majority of girls with autism mask it in school. They copy a girl who's very popular. They, they fit in all day. They're acting all day. They go home. They're shattered and they mm. have a meltdown. So if you don't listen to the parent and just go, oh, that's bad parenting. It may be that the child's autistic. It may not be. It may be bad parenting. I'm not saying it's always the case, but we need to listen. Listening is such an important part of our job as teachers. Mm. And we need time. You know, my biggest problem with school at the moment is they're trying to cram so much in and they're forgetting that they're actually people we're trying to teach. And if we don't know those people, we won't teach them properly. Yes, or spot any of these things. Exactly. So, so how would you improve education for pupils? Um, now, the question that I've got is, how would you improve education for pupils with, with dyslexia? But, you know, how would you improve education for pupils with any, any SEND? Time. That's what I'm saying. Children need time. The first thing is we have to give them opportunities to shine. So if we're going to just be focused on English, math, science, whatever, academia, we are going to lose those children. We are not going to educate them properly. Um, there's a brilliant story that um, Ken Robinson tells about this girl who was, couldn't stay still. It's, uh, she was misbehaving in class and they took her to an ed, uh, sort of ed psych who left her in the room, said to the mum, I need to talk to you, left her in the room with the radio on and this girl just started dancing and she turned around and said this child doesn't have ADHD she's a dancer mm. you know opportunity it, we need to know the children we need time we need to give people a chance to succeed now some people succeed academically some people succeed in other ways but society at the moment values academia and what really really bugs me is in order to be properly listened to to talk about the fact that we need to value more than academia, I need to get a doctorate. Mm. I get a doctorate, everyone wants to know what I'm saying. And what I want to say is, why do we have to have the doctorate in the first place? Not everybody needs that route. Um, mm. You know, we have our creatives. We are, we are squashing the arts and creativity out of the curriculum. Um, read A Curriculum of Hope by Deborah Kidd. And she will show you how you can teach any subject and have creativity in it. Mm. She's brilliant. Curriculum of Hope. Deborah Kidd. Really recommend her strongly. Um, Heil Roberts, another one. They're, they're people I really admire in terms of managing to get the most out of this overloaded curriculum in ways that allow for that creativity to shine through. We need people in our, you know, we're just going through a pandemic we don't necessarily need our mathematicians we need our creative thinkers we need our problem solvers we need people who can who are resilient who can work out how to make something better because they got it wrong who will admit to getting it wrong mm. not think of any politicians in particular but you know will admit that they got <laughs> it wrong and they could actually do better and we can learn from our mistakes and make things better we need creative thinkers we need logical thinkers and a spoon-fed 
curriculum that focuses on data is not going to give us that. They're going to give us people who can regurgitate facts. Mm. It's arbitrary what facts we learn in school. Yeah. You and know, that, that's... We don't remember them and we've got a phone. And, <laughs> I, well, I, you know, I'm that person who... Like I can't, well, I don't really watch TV anyway, but if I did sit and watch it, especially if it's something like a historical drama, like I know what's going to happen in the end because I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm <laughs> looking it all up before it's yeah. finished because I'm like, is this real or is there a lot of artistic license here? And I like to find out how much. And I think, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have said that I'm very good at remembering the facts because I know I can just tap into them. I can download yeah. them whenever I need um and so yeah. that's not the future is it it is creative thinking and as an employer i i i can see that kind of unfolding and happening there's still a place for memory though we do still need to remember things um yeah. our phones die on us sometimes but you know that's where you have your your poetry recital for example learn a poem off by heart that plays with your memory i mean for me we used to do the poetry recital and i always opened it with a poem Mm -hmm. So I always had to learn one. Now, that takes me a very, very long time. So the poetry recital would be in October. I started learning a poem the minute we broke up for the summer holidays. Wow. Yeah, because then I knew I'd know it by October. Well, the thing is, the first few years, it was great. I just did the ones I'd learned when I was at school yeah. and the ones I knew anyway. Then, of course, I ran out <laughs> to start <laughs> yeah. learning new ones. So then I started, you know, and what I did is I memory tricks so um i would record myself saying it and then listen back and say it with it mm. that's how i learned my terminology for taekwondo um to get my black belt i had to pass my terminology and i i've recorded myself saying it now everybody at the club has my voice teaching them terminology so i recorded myself saying it and leaving gaps for me to then put the english or the korean and, and and learn it so you know that's one of my techniques but that is a really good technique though especially when you're learning something new um i did musical theater at um college and then university and something that i'd never really done is like group singing and harmonies and that just wasn't something that i would just that i felt like just clicked with me and i really struggled to learn them and everyone else seemed to like know all the harmonies but i got a dictaphone and yeah. i recorded it and then and now I could easily learn it and, and sing it and be the one that kind of keeps everyone else on track um but then you need kind yeah. of the support to get you to a point where you you can don't you sometimes well we had my supervisor at um when I did my doctorate my final supervisor who was fantastic um brilliant lady and she's the one who got me to be assessed for dyslexia she, she actually forced me I, I didn't want to go I was too frightened of being found to be stupid um, and I, I literally when I went into the place at uni to where you go and ask to be assessed I was crying when I spoke to them I was getting really embarrassed because I'm like I don't know why I'm crying I don't know why I'm crying um, but anyway um, she made me record every one of our meetings because what was going wrong before is I was taking notes well, firstly, I couldn't read half of my notes. And secondly, I didn't know what they were on about. I was miscorrecting myself. So I was doing corrections, but I was getting them wrong because I wasn't doing the right things. Whereas once I recorded it, I still had notes and I recorded it. And then I started making progress. 
um, she got me to do a representation of my model of leadership uh, as a poster for she she said I need this for this conference I'm putting on yeah she basically knew that that would get it in my head and I did this poster and suddenly everything clicked and it was like oh yeah I know what I'm doing now mm. so finding those other ways of doing things whether it's visual auditory but using those other other techniques is really important what was that diagnosis process like for you I cried for a lot of it it was weird because I'm a Senko so um I got in the room and I was fascinated. I'm like, oh, yeah, really interested. Um, she started with all the intelligence stuff, which was great because they were easy. I, it turns out my son's told me I have to tell somebody this every day till I believe it. I'm on the 99.8th percentile for intelligence. Um, I was frightened I was going to be found to be stupid. So that was good. Um, but then she moved on to these other things. We had to do digits forwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't write down the telephone number correctly. Um, I'll get all the right numbers down there, but they won't be in the right order, which sort of matters when you're making a phone call. Um, so, yeah. you know, well, um, you've got, um, got a, a smartphone that remembers all I, the numbers. I, I've got strategies. I, I mask things off. So I only see one thing at a time. Um, I had to read a passage. This was, this was the good one. Read a passage. It was about chocolate, the history of chocolate. And I could read accurately, but my speed. So I've got, I've got stuff that I'm doing. My, my reading is on the first percentile mm -hmm. and my intelligence is on the 99.8th. And as, uh, there's other aspects of my reading that are on the fifth. My comprehension with the text in front of me is right up the top. You take mm -hmm. the text away and I don't know what I've just read. Mm. So, um, I read this thing, it was about chocolate, and there's a, a line in it where they talk about chocolate houses, meaning like coffee houses, tea houses, there's these chocolate houses. Well, I started giggling because I could just picture little houses made of chocolate, and I couldn't get that picture out of my mind. She had to stop the clock because I giggled for over a minute, and then I kept giggling again. But anyway, when it came to writing, so answering questions, I could retrieve the information. I'm, I'm, it's what I do. I'm an English teacher. She then took the passage away and told me to write about it. I wrote in incoherent sentences. I had no order to it. And half the information wasn't in the passage. It was actually because I'd walked in on a lesson two weeks earlier that a colleague was teaching about the history of chocolate. And I could remember what he'd said. And I was putting all of that in my thing. I had no way of filtering what was from his lesson and what was in the passage I just read. There was no filtering system. Um, so the whole thing was stressful. There were a lot of aspects where I just cried. Um, did a lot of crying. There was some, I got a lot correct, but it was my speed. So for example, there's stuff where you have, because it's for an adult, they don't do letters. They do a symbol matching thing mm -hmm. so that, you're not using prior knowledge. They're seeing how you are recognizing. Yeah. You know, it's a very clever way of doing it. Um, and because I'd worked with children on that, I'd never seen one of these. So it was not a learned test, if you like. Mm -hmm. I got it all right, but I was so slow. I was on the first percentile. Mm -hmm. But I was on 100% I, I accuracy, but the first percentile because of speed. Um, 
and I did a lot of crying, as I say. Then she gave me the um, she gave me the results, and it was weird because I had this the results in front of me, just the numbers, and I became a senko. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, what a discrepancy! These are really interesting figures. Or, oh look, mm. you've got this. I, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen one with this sort of discrepancy. And she just suddenly went, "That's you." Burst into tears again, and it was actually relief because it was unquestionable that I was dyslexic, and unquestionable that I wasn't stupid. And it's what I said before about targeted, deserved praise. I couldn't argue anymore because I had figures in front of me. You know, like the, um, the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz who mm. wants a brain. And when he gets his diploma, he's like, I've got a brain. Mm. It's a bit like that. Um, I had the figures in front of me and it was like, no, this is me. Um, there's a reason why I'm taking so long to do everything because I read something to decode it. I then read it to get a little bit of meaning then I reread it. I read something four times to understand it, unless mm -hmm. it's a really trashy novel and I don't have to worry. But if it's got any meat to it at all, I have to read it four times. When I write, to, I, I put together services for our synagogue and I have to, when I read, everyone thinks I'm great at reading out loud. That's because I don't, I, I know, I understand syntax. I understand reading. So I can read something and put all the expression in. Haven't got a clue what I've just read. If you then said to me, what have you just read? I do not know. Mm. So no, there, there's this mismatch between performance. Yeah. And that's another sign. Go back to your earlier question about scientific dyslexia. Comprehension. Because when we assess reading, there's reading accuracy, fluency, speed, and comprehension. Just because somebody can decode the letters doesn't mean they've understood what they've read. It could be a sign of dyslexia. It could be a sign of EAL. It could be a sign of speech and language difficulties. But don't assume because somebody's reading fluently in front of you that they know what they've read. Um, just another going back to school thing. And I watched a program last night called The, right, the Write-Offs. It was on Channel 4. And it was about adult, dis adults who couldn't read and write and working with them to develop that. And I cried a lot in it because it, it rang a lot of bells. And one thing they talked about was reading around the class. Please, if you're a teacher out there, please, please, please don't make your children read around the class. I did it. Um, and what happened is I would, we were in rows. I knew that it was a paragraph each. So I would count the people who would be reading before me. I would count the paragraphs. I would read the one before mine, mine and the one after in case I'd miscounted mm -hmm. because I sometimes forget where I am with numbers. Um, I would read them and read them till I heard my name. I'd hear Helen and I would then start reading the right paragraph. Hadn't understood anything. Don't know what came before because all I'd done is read my bits. When I'd finished reading, my heart's thump, 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 thump. All I'm doing is coming down from the stress level. Yeah. So... I then, if we didn't have the book to read at home, I didn't know what the book was. I can relate yeah. to that. <laughs> Just, yeah. and, and, and it's not that I struggle necessarily with reading, but I, it was more about the pressure of the performance, um, which yeah. is, 
ironic to say I went on to do performing arts, but still, you know, I just the pressure of the performance. And I just think going back to what you said about, you know, just because somebody can read doesn't mean to say they can comprehend it. And um, this was actually when I was at school myself. And I remember being in year six and there was a girl in the class and um, I don't know what needs she had, but I, I knew that she had needs. And um, I remember saying to my mum, my mum was um, at the time in school as well. Um, so she knew a lot about that thing. I said, she's so, she's so good at reading. Um, and like she was, I remember listening to her a read, but she would read like, um, so say if I just pick a question here, it would be uh, top tips for supporting a six child. So she'd go top tips for supporting a six child working at your own level. And, and she would just read really fast. And, and my, I remember my mom saying to me, um, you know, comprehension is not reading. And, and I don't know why I remember that from being 10 years old, but, but I do, but I can sort of remember that so clearly and you could see that. Yeah. That whole, yes, reading the words is different to knowing what I'm reading. And you get that an awful lot with autistic kids, speech language communication needs and um, EAL. So what happens is the teachers then assume especially when you're out of your when you're in your english lesson you're going to focus on the understanding but somebody in another lesson may well just assume oh they just read that like that they'll mm. assume a knowledge and an understanding that isn't there so we do need to break that down comprehension is is not the same as decoding we mm. need to break and also the thing is for me it's not that I don't have comprehension. It's just that the skills required to decode words. You know when I said about breaking up what it is you're doing? Mm. So decoding words takes up so much of my reading effort that I haven't got room for the comprehension. Yeah. But it, and it's not just reading. It's articulating it. So you, you're putting in another, if they're reading out loud, you've added another level of difficulty. I'm not only seeing the word on the page, but I've got to articulate it. So like in the Harry Potter books, Hermione had no idea how that word was pronounced till I saw the film. Probably lots of people were the same. Never heard the name before, no idea. But I never had to read the word. I just had to recognise that was the character. Yeah. So she was Herm. She was just Herm because I could read the Herm bit. So Herm, until I saw the film, yeah. was that character's name. But if I'd had to read it out loud, that would have added a whole new dimension. Hmm. And that's another thing about dyslexics. Are they reading differently when they read to themselves and when they read out loud? You know, going back to that year, the teacher who says, how do I know? Um, hmm that's another sign it, 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 reading it is a much more complex process than we give it credit for we yeah. often talk about it you know i mean it was my sight words that was one of the things that was on the first percentile mm. um i got you know i just yeah <laughs> just decoding <laughs> gosh yeah so going back to that then you've obviously talked about the diagnosis process so what strategies have you got that you use now well a lot of them i had already um like masking so if i have to read so i i've always used my fingers when i'm reading so i i i, I get both hands 
all my fingers are along that line. So I'm tracing my words so I can keep my place. So that's one strategy. Otherwise I will jump. Mm-hmm. I, I can't hold my place. I can't. The other thing is to avoid um, looking at, like I can't look at a, a whiteboard and then look back at my work. I, I can't keep my place in those two places. So that's the color coding of a, of a board. I do it just as much for me as for the kids. Mm-hmm. If I color code my board, I'll know where I am when I've looked away and looked back. I was on the red one, or I was on the pink one, I was on the blue one, whatever it happens to be, I can find it. So colour coding is an important one. Um, There's a a dictionary, which is, oh gosh, what's it called? It's not the ACE one, it's another one. There's a dyslexia dictionary where things are in, um, they are written phonically. And then if they're correctly spelled, they're in one colour. And if they're incorrect, it's got the correct one next to it so for example even now if I write the word use as in I used you know I used to go to the zoo um my I I touch the letter y first because yeah I hear the yeah I know it's a letter u but Mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking of the the y and yeah there's things like that so thinking about things like that um so color coding is a big one um post-its I have post, you know, the computer post-its you can get that are actually on the screen itself. Oh, yeah. I've yeah. got those. Yeah. Those notes everywhere. I need those because I need reminders of everything. So I've got notes everywhere. I have used since they were really awful devices, but the first, I can't what they were even called. They had a funny, they had, I think it was three letters, which is why I can't do it because I don't know what order the letters would have been in. But it was a personal device before you all had your phones and could do it in that people had a little personal device you could use um for making notes i've had one of those now my phone is everything my phone is my reminder so if i had a cover lesson i'd put it in my phone with an alarm because otherwise i wouldn't go to it even if the cover lesson was the next thing i had to do i would forget so reminders on my phone that's a really big one post-its on my phone reminders on my phone my phone is is just Oh my gosh, smartphones have, have made my world wonderful. Um, as I say, Dragon Actually Speaking, I would not have done a doctorate without it. So I can dictate um, into that. I use a coloured overlay or a coloured screen. So I, I don't ever do black on white um, if I can avoid it because that's just going to take me forever. Um, masking off anything that's irrelevant. If I'm producing something, an uncluttered page, I cannot cope with if there's too much on a page i can't it just overwhelms me if that mm-hmm. makes sense but picture notes as well I, I don't make notes always with words i i'll draw little things um if i'm listening to something i have to be doodling if i'm if i'm just listening like in a meeting i won't remember a thing but if i'm doodling i'll just be doodling and then something important will come up and I'll draw a picture so I'll come back to it and I'll remember it so um classical music if I I love music if I'm doing anything where I've got to do it with words so I'm reading I can't listen to anything with words in it because I can't separate out the words to the song (laughs) and and the words I'm reading I yeah um (laughs) I, I struggle I'll start with that. Writing. Yeah, I think a lot of people. I just start 
singing along. <laughs> Thinking time, giving. Also, if you know you're dyslexic, allowing yourself to say it. It's taken a long time, even after my diagnosis. I was only diagnosed two years ago and it took me a good year to actually turn around to people and say, can I give you an answer in a minute? It's not that I don't know the answer. I need time to think. Mm. So requesting thinking time, there's nothing wrong with that. So making sure you give yourself thinking time to come up with an answer. Mm. That is really important. If it's something like this, it's not a problem because all those ideas are in my head. That's not a problem. But if it's a new thing we were talking about, I would need that processing time. Mm. So request it. So if you're a teacher, say, for example, you're a teacher, you might say you're doing a, a times table test. You might say, oh, what, five threes, what, seven fours, whatever it happens to be. You might go up to a certain child and say, in a minute, I'm going to ask you what seven eights are. Then you ask several other things. Then you come back and say, what are seven eights? You've given them time to process that information and think about it. Mm. Thinking time is really important. And yeah. it's, it goes back to what I said before, you know, we often don't have time, but we need it. And to know all these things, what, what I'm finding so amazing about this is that we're not hearing it from somebody saying well you need to do this for your children you need to do that for your children we're hearing you say what you do and need and I just think that adds a completely different dimension because it's like it it's like having a window into what a child may be feeling who's able to articulate it as an adult as as we understand it whereas yeah. you can't imagine a child sort of knowing these things they haven't had a chance to work this out they have you know they don't have the same well they might not have the same level of vocabulary depending on how old they are but it's almost like you are translating for us <laughs> what a child might be feeling and thinking and that is gold thank you well uh, i think that's why i mean i know yeah i know the things i'm not good at i know i'm a good senko and the reason is, I get it. It's as simple as that. I've been there. I'm not going to make any child feel stupid. I will make them feel confident. I use puppets all the time. Puppets are great because kids will talk to a puppet. Mm -hmm. They forget it's a, they know it's a puppet, but they will still tell it things they might not tell a person. Um, so I use puppets a lot, but I make coming to me fun because it wasn't fun for me going where I had to go yeah and it's got to be fun you've got to have that you've got to start getting that self-belief because it doesn't go away I mean I you know I'm, I'm 57 years old my go-to is I'm stupid I'm thick I've got a doctorate for crying out loud I can't be totally thick um but it's still my go-to because when I can't think of the answer oh I'm so stupid it just comes out well, I want to get to those children before it gets embedded in their mm. sense of self because yeah. it takes a lot more time to undo the longer you've had that sense of being stupid. Um, so you, you need to recognize the good. And this is with supportive parents. You know, I have parents who just, as I say, they supported me all the way. They didn't know about dyslexia, but, you know, they really have been supportive parents. What would it have been like if I had a parent telling me I was thick? 
mm. actually mm. saying it actually oh, for crying out loud yeah my brother was a brilliant reader he was reading I think he was born reading you know mm. um he was the one who actually finally taught me to read um but for the children who don't have that support at home the other thing really important for teachers to remember quite often these things are hereditary my dad's dyslexic his dad would have been dyslexic I've got dyslexic kids so we then send letters home to parents to come to a parents evening what if they can't read the letter mm. If you've got a special needs child, it's always worth following up a letter with a phone call and just saying, oh, just checking, did you get my letter about? Then you tell them the content of the letter. They don't feel stupid because you, you don't say, shall I read it to you? You just say, did you get my letter about a parent's evening next week? They then are not made to feel stupid, but you know they've got the message. Yeah. Because it's amazing how often it's our send parents who don't turn up. And it's not because they're not interested, but they didn't understand what they were being asked to do yeah and we need to remember they may have send to i'm all for the the future of video um i did a short term as a, as a governor mentioned it and it, it didn't go down well but i think you know especially now with what's happening and and zoom and things i think it's the future i think you know if you want to engage um your wider community when you're showing your face and who you are and Anyway, that's another yeah. story. I won't go on. Um, no, that... no, it's important because we have got an opportunity for flexible learning now. Mm. We've got, you know, what about our, a, um, you know, our, our child on the autistic spectrum who can't cope that day with the noise of the school? Why can't they do a remote lesson that day? Yeah. They're having a bad day. Why can't every class have a webcam in it? Every lesson is able to be live streamed. They can join in, but it's also recorded. So if they're not up to joining in, they can watch it back later. Why can't we, we've, we're all set up for it now. We've had to be. Mm. I don't know a single teacher who doesn't know how to use a virtual, you know, some sort of remote platform. So why aren't we having, you know, why, why can't we have incorporate into it flexible schooling? So instead of it being, oh, they're stressing out, we'll just send them home for the day because they can't cope. They could actually be in school at home. Yeah. We, so this, this pandemic has forced us to address this and to engage with the technology that has scared the pants off of teachers for, for years, who've been <laughs> avoiding doing webinars, who've avoided it. So many teachers have avoided it and they've got no choice now. So let's bring that in. Mm. It could help so many. So on that note, I'm going to ask you where you think education should go in the next 10 years. <laughs> there you go. Well, I think we've got to have a, it's got to be a mixed match. I think we need, we do need to see people. There are certain things you're not going to say through a, a video conversation. We do need real experiences. We, we also, you know, how do we do our science experiments in our kitchen? I don't think our parents would like that very much. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things like that. We do need real lessons, but we could have a mix. We could be more creative. This is, I think we need, we need things like I mentioned before, a curriculum of hope by Deborah Kidd. We need that holistic approach, that problem solving approach. I'm going to give you one example from her book, which is relevant to our current situation. They were teaching volcanoes. And they were saying they were doing a joined up thing and it was a very um, experiential learning. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems they threw up was there's all this smoke and they need to 
they need masks, but there aren't enough masks to go around. Okay, mm -hmm. we can relate to that in a pandemic. There aren't yeah. enough masks to go around. The kids turned up and turned around and said, "Well, why don't we cut up the bras?" <laughs> Which adult is going to come up with that creative solution? But a kid sees a bra on a washing line. Well, that's a face mask, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, why? You know, that's something that was in Deborah Kidd's book. You know, that's the future of education. Letting the kids helping the kids learn how to learn, letting mm -hmm. them be creative, letting them have logic, letting them do problem solving. Yes, we'll teach them facts along the way, but let's have them working through dilemmas and teaching history through dilemmas. Then they can look back at it. Reenacting things will actually throw up things. They might say, well, that's relevant today. Go back to my conversation earlier about not rushing back at school. If we were doing something about volcanoes and they talked about face masks and somebody might suddenly come out with the fact that they'd lost a family member during the pandemic mm -hmm. because actually that brought it back to them. But if we don't teach it that way, they don't get the chance to come up with that thought, the, all that mental, you know, social, emotional, mental health stuff. We yeah. could address it if we taught differently. So I think that's the future. We, we need to stop trying to fill these empty vessels with knowledge and start trying to engage with them and actually work together and learn together also you know for employment we need to be developing creative thinkers who can solve problems um, exactly. you know that's what i do for a living solve problems and yeah I, I, you know that and that's what i look for in my team the help to solve problems um, and so, yeah, I think it's really important. Okay, last question then. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to work with children. I always knew that. Um, I, th I thought I was going to be a child psychologist. Um, and, then, and then I didn't get into the right university to do that. And I, and I magically fell into teaching. So I didn't know I wanted to do that. I knew I wanted to work with children. I've always known that. Um, but I just didn't know what. And then this amazing thing called a B.Ed. happened. And I, yeah, I just found it was what I, I am. I found out two things about myself growing up. I found out when I was, not, I think, 18 or 19 that I was a, te I was a teacher. And then I found out at 25 that I am also a mum. And those mm -hmm. two things define me. Um, you know, they say, what age are you in your head? Mm -hmm. I'm 25. I, I, I'm never pre-25 because I can't imagine life without being a mum. So they're the two things that define me. So both funny enough to do with children. So, yes. Yeah. So children were definitely in your life. Well, thank yeah. you, Helen. I think, oh, it's been, I've loved chatting to you. It's been really, really nice. <laughs> but also, you Sorry if I've gone on a bit. <laughs> no, you've delivered so much that I think is just so helpful for for so many teachers because we were saying just before um the interview weren't with we, that there are some things and this is one of the areas where if you do a pgce course you get half an hour on it and then you're expected oh, to just know yeah. and yeah. and unfortunately that's not the case and you know for a lot of um a lot of children this is such a massive impact on their lives yet we get half an hour um, yeah. And so any anything that we can do to just open up our understanding um, 
even if it's just to help one child for one year of your teaching career it's it's worth just trying to find something new out so thank you so much oh you're welcome Uh, anything i can ever do that helps special needs kids especially but all kids that that's what i do thank you thank you you're welcome thank you so much for listening small changes for a big impact there were so many simple actionable tips there and i really hope that you take something valuable away to implement in your classroom you'll find everything that helen and i talked about in the show notes including a link to register for our webinar if you happen to be listening on the 13th of October. Our listenership has grown so much during the past 15 months since we started the show. And if you love listening, I'd be so grateful for your five-star review on your usual podcast app. You can also join me in the Teachers Podcast community on Facebook. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.